Welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we take a deep intellectual dive into the academic research and behavioral science of what really gets people to take on pro-environmental action and behavior. I'm your host, Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and designer based in Silicon Valley, California, and I'm the author of the book, How to Save the World, How to Make Changing the World the Greatest Game We've Ever Played. If you haven't already, sign up to my website at katiepatrick.com to get more free resources about how you can use gamification and behavior design to get your community to zero emissions and make it fun like a game. Hi, everybody, and great to be back here with you. Today's episode is about how to persuade homeowners to take on energy efficiency or climate upgrades to their homes. Now, do we ask them using environmental facts or by showing kilowatts of data? Or is a social mechanism more effective, like a conversation with a neighbor or a friend? When big climate decarbonization and electrification programs are rolled out by utilities and local governments and NGOs across the thousands or even millions of homes, and these organizations often spend millions of dollars trying to get traction in communities, These questions and the the nuance of the response of what works to drive action really matter. Our guest today is Brian Southwell, and the research paper we are diving into is titled Weatherization, Behavior and Social Context, the Influences of Factual Knowledge and Social Interaction. This paper investigates which works better to get people to take action in their homes, facts or conversations. Brian Southwell is the adjunct professor at Duke University's School of Medicine. He's the director of the Science in the Public Sphere program at a large nonprofit research institute called RTI, and he also hosts the Measure of Everyday Life radio show. And this paper and this conversation we're about to have with Brian opens up something that I have never heard before, and I think we need to start crystallizing it, and that is this concept of conversation design, or when we're talking about climate, climate conversation design. So let's put a big circle around that, turn it into a thing, turn it into a concept. And let's start to think if you're a designer or a sustainability manager, or you're working on a zero emissions program, and you need to reach out to people to get a response, how do we design for conversations? How do we design neighbors to talk to neighbors, spouses to talk to spouses, classmates to talk to other classmates? Because social change rides on the back of interpersonal conversations between people. We can look at climate data and we can look at documentaries and we can look at feedback loops, my chestnut of designing environmental data. But these things are not as strong as a real person having a real conversation with another human. And I haven't heard about this particular type of thing talked about in this context of what is conversation design. So I want to put the question out there to you to start really thinking about that. And if you wanted to design something to try to carry a conversation from one person to another, what would you design for that? When I started thinking about this question, I made a map. I went onto Google Satellite View. I looked at a block near where I live in Mountain View, and I could see which houses had solar and which ones didn't. And then I took it into Canva, and I made badges for each of the houses. So something like that, for example, if I was going door to door, I could then use this chart, use these badges to start encouraging conversations with neighbors. 
It could also be something like a yard sign. If you've got solar or if you've got an EV, or if you've got a fully electric house, you could put some kind of yard sign out to signal to the neighbors and perhaps encourage that conversation. And then I started to think about what if I was meeting up with a friend or maybe going on a date with somebody, what could be something fun I could do to help encourage these conversations? And I thought about climate origami. So I made this origami bird and on each fold, there was a sort of a curious and detailed question about the carbon emissions of different products or different vehicles. If it's your mission to have a conversation, maybe we need something like a star chart or a sticker chart to give yourself a sticker every time you have one of these climate centric conversations. You could use something unusual or use novelty like a pin or a sculpture that people ask you about when they come over. It could be an outdoor sign or a sculpture in a public place that explicitly asks people to talk about, like a, like a talking spot or a talking point that's in the public environment. If you're designing a campaign, you might want to come up with a script, just a paragraph that people can memorize and they can start bringing it up with people. It could be earth or climate cookies that you give out. You could even make like a party package that has food and conversation starter kits and snacks and those kind of like icebreaker party tools with stickers and star charts that's branded and labeled. And if anybody wants one, they can just host a vegan barbecue and they get their climate kit, like a climate conversation kit. Once we know the primary principles of how human decision-making works, we understand the psychology, the neuroscience, and the social science, and we understand how humans make decisions through the social influence and the conversations of others, then we can get to work as climate action designers, as designers of change, and start really putting our creativity to work to figure out how we can harness this intrinsic psychological mechanism, how we can ride on the back of it and really start putting it to work so we can start Start seeing the climate action happen that we want. I think climate conversation design is a totally untapped space that we can really get stuck into and come up with some really awesome, fun and creative ideas. Before we jump into the episode with Brian, I wanted to let you know that I have just launched my Gamify the Planet monthly masterclass in climate action design. And we're kicking off with a detailed workshop in my behavior mapping process. This process completely changed my life. It completely changed my approach to environmental work, and it's the secret behind how I can come up with so many ideas so rapidly. It's a 10-step process that draws from something called user story mapping that's used in software design. I've added a total of 96 social-based marketing, gamification, and behavioral science techniques that are proven to influence people in this 10-step structure that you can follow to map out every detail of your idea and your mission so you can come up with a really elegant and laser focused concept that is really going to work. I can't emphasize enough like how much I love this behavior mapping process and I do it for everything. And this is the first time I'll be teaching a detailed masterclass in it. If you want to sign up for the Gamify the Planet masterclass, it's only $25 a month on Patreon. The link is in the show notes below. You can read more about it at katiepatrick.com forward slash gamify the planet. And you sign up on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash katiepatrick and choose the Gamify the Planet tier. Now let's jump into the episode with Professor Brian Southwell. Welcome to the show, Brian. Katie, it's great to be here. I really appreciate all that you do with the show and I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here and also being such an accomplished social sciences coming in here to talk about environmental behavior change. 
I always start the podcast with asking everybody the same question, which is for all of us here, we're all environmental engineers, scientists, city planners, people who are trying to really measurably make environmental change happen. But most of us do not come from a background of social science. We don't understand behavioral psychology very well, yet we're trying to make these big changes happen, often at an institutional level. What is the problem when we are so in the dark about social science and the real tangible nuts and bolts of behavior change? Yeah, I appreciate you starting our conversation that way. I think the real challenge is that, you know, from an engineering standpoint, if you see a population that you need to behave in a particular way, Ideally, you could envision people as you know a switch that you could flip. This needs to be turned on here. This neighborhood needs to be doing this. This part of the country needs to be doing that. And you know, we know from human experience that you know, people are more complicated than that. I think part of the challenge is there also are often cut and dry cases to be made for a particular adoption of a technology. You'd think there's a case to be made. This is smart to do. People would do it if you just give them the right information. Now, unfortunately, education based on facts alone often doesn't really motivate the type of behavior change that we hope to occur. People do things not necessarily just purely irrationally. There's a lot of rationale built into their everyday behavior and what they're doing to try to get by in the world. So we've got to unpack that and recognize that there are influences of habit and inertia and perhaps even misunderstanding under some circumstances, but also social dimensions to life. There are complicated reasons why people behave as they do. And if we can better incorporate that into our planning, we're going to do a better job in terms of getting people to go along with what we think needs to happen. And that's really where psychology as it relates to the environment can come in. I think that there are lots of instances where there are these dimensions that if you stop and think about your own everyday life and all the reasons why you do things, all the influences on you, you'll recognize that you know there's no any one single bullet usually. It's going to be a complicated array of things that are going to be necessary to get you to do what we hope you're going to do. But yet we don't take that same level of sophistication into a lot of these arenas. And so, you know, the good news is that there's a pretty wide range of social psychology, literature, communication research, social science research that could be adapted. And people are starting to do that to some extent, but I think there's a long way to go still. And that's where it's exciting because I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to apply insights from human behavior to doing work to shore up our relationship with the environment. One question that people keep asking me, and it seems to be in the zeitgeist of the environmental movement right now, which is a criticism of individual psychology or asks of individual people to take action when some people are saying that, you know, we really need big systems change. Like, why are you asking individual people to take action when we need the oil companies and the government to do it? And almost a despising, like some people are quite sort of angry and sort of aggressive towards the idea of, why are you asking individual people to action? It's not enough. And so I've been really diving into this question quite a lot in my own work, but I always like to ask it of the guests. If someone said to you, we're trying to save the planet, why are you asking individual people to take action when we need systems level change? How would you answer that question? Yeah, I don't disagree that we need systems level change. I think that I tend to view these complicated problems as being a matter of often needing to inch towards a solution, needing all the above. Even if you're talking about needing a larger level change, individual change aggregated can still make some of that easier. And so why not? Unless it's really going to be taking away from your opportunity to advocate for larger companies, for governments to be taking some of the steps that they ultimately are going to need to take. The other thing to recognize, I think, is that institutions, governments, I don't know if it's necessarily right to think about them as standalone entities separate from human society. And so another way to think about this is insofar as the society is shifting under one's feet, 
there are leaders that are humans that are attached to those that are, are going to be aware of, are going to be seeing you know, some of this change. Even if part of what happens is some encouragement of optimism that change is possible, you see all of a sudden large-scale adoption of different technologies. I think it can start to change the thinking about what the business case is for X or Y or how scary or intractable you know, some of this might be. And insofar as there is leader resistance to the idea that any of this would be acceptable, that can also start to shift as well. So I view it as an all of the above type of strategy. We probably aren't going to get there on the basis of individual behavior change alone, but also by having those types of efforts, it can certainly make the job a little bit easier and maybe it paves the way for some of the broader discussion because we are all in this together. And as of right now, a lot of these institutions aren't run by artificial technology. They're run by human beings that are part of a society. So that's how I tend to think about it is that it's complementary, certainly, to the larger discussions that we need to have. Yeah. And from the way you've explained it, it sounds like it's really sort of a wrong way to think, to think that there are these two binary buckets of individual right. change and systems change, that all systems are made up of individuals as well as systems level design, and they're constantly working together. And you also have like a tipping point that happens. Often you have these social movements that grow with individuals, and they essentially sort of enable these larger changes of governments and corporations. And the larger changes of government and corporations only happen when you have this kind of a groundswell of individuals happening in a way that they're all connected. Yeah. And I think part of what we need to do is probably think a bit more creatively about what some of the outcomes are. And it can feel hopeless sometimes. Like, are we just talking about turning a light switch on and off? But instead, if you're thinking about the range of things that people can do in their life, part of what they can do is vote. You know, Part of what they can do is take other action. Part of what they can do is decide on where they're going to live. There are a range of behaviors that are really consequential for even policy level change that you're going to make. If you've got populations that are concentrated in particular areas that are doing you know, particular things or aren't, it's going to have implication for what some of those changes are that you're trying to make. And even if you think about the demands or the pressures at a macro level on energy systems, generally speaking, it can change the calculus for what some of those larger changes need to be if you have a large enough aggregate and a critical mass of individual change. And so I think all of it fits together more nicely than people realize. Yeah. And the reason why I asked you that question was to segue into the research paper, just in this context of when I've tried to carve up the answer to that question, I realized that there are so many things that need to have to happen. And they all kind of happen on a scale of government only to individual. And I come up with this idea of like six buckets that I could kind of categorize different behaviors. And some are really government only, for example, a carbon tax, like you can't right. do that as an individual the planning laws around parking spaces, if a major freeway is put in. These things are really, really government only. But however, even in the government only bucket, there still are certain individual actions that you can put into that. And then all of the different things kind of go along a scale. And then you have certain things that really are individual only, like the government can't make you grow your own vegetables, right? So moving into the research paper that you worked on in regards to yeah. weatherization, in order to get an aggregate certain amount of energy efficiency of demand in terms of the kilowatt hours, et cetera, you really need people to take certain individual behaviors in homes, no matter how much government support you have. If the system is totally there for you in every single way, we still need to go house by house, block by block, and make certain environmental upgrades to houses. And there's no way that you can get around that. And just the way property laws work and individual ownership, people need to do that of their own accord. So there's a huge amount of individual behavioral science that needs to be applied to the individual behavior change mechanism when we look at the building stock, which makes up about a third of carbon emissions. 
Right. There's something else important too that I think you just touched on was just thinking about the respect for individual freedom, which varies by culture for better or worse in the US. We have that as a both opportunity and challenge as part of our cultural history there. But that does also complicate the possibility for mandates under some circumstances. And so it's useful to think about some of this as well. But what I also like about your sense of buckets, you might also think about that in terms of continuum. You might also think about the connections between some of those different levels. And that's where I think the inspiration for that paper that you're talking about came about was consideration of a layer just beyond the individual in a way. It has to do with individual perceptions, but we also might think about social. To what extent other people in your life have a normative influence? To what extent does what other people are doing play a role? And that's a space that I'm not sure we've operated in very much. There have been some efforts and initiatives, but if you think about on the one end, individually addressing a person as the recipient of a message saying, I need you to do X or Y. On the other end, we're going to do this for you from a government standpoint for a whole society. Somewhere in between is the possibility of working indirectly through networks and social networks. And we know that social networks play a huge role in the diffusion of information in the way that our response to the pandemic has unfolded and in our everyday lives, we are social beings. We are oriented towards interacting with other people. And so it makes sense to incorporate that. I think part of what we found compelling was the idea that you take something mundane, like you know, weatherization behavior. I don't yeah. like to interrupt, but can you just explain what weatherization is in case Abs- nobody's familiar with that word? Absolutely. Yes. I appreciate that. So if you think about behavior like weatherization, which we labeled that as a category of behaviors in the paper, you might think about the need that many houses have to be prepared for weather extremes. So things you could do to tighten up the insulation, for example, in a house so that you don't have either heat escaping if you've generated that or you've got weather differential leading to changes or drafts, those types of adjustments that could be made sometimes relatively simply and easily, but they nonetheless take some work and effort. Sometimes they require working with a contractor, but nonetheless steps that can be taken to reduce the inefficiency in a house in terms of heating and cooling, which we know is important given the really important role that heating and cooling play in individual house energy consumption. So given that, we wanted to look at the extent to which that was a behavior, which could be explained by various factors and think about what that story tells us when we looked at it. That was kind of the impetus for that paper. And what was the big message that came out of that? What was the big wow factor from that paper? So from our standpoint, we had done some work on measuring knowledge about energy. And we'd also done some work on measuring practical knowledge about energy use in your house. So the degree to which you are able to make sense of an energy bill and the way that that was calculated. And I think Part of the rationale for many individual campaigns is that we're going to show people, look, you can save money. If you take this step with your house, you can make your house more energy efficient. And it's in the realm of factual knowledge and education. What we found was that if you look at and measure those factors, you measure how much people know about how energy systems work, measure what people know about their sense of energy usage in the US, about whether or not coal is a renewable energy source, those types of things. You look at whether or not a person understands how to interpret an energy bill. You look at the actual housing that they're living in and the extent to which it may or may not need weatherization. You look at some of those factors. You'd think that you could do a pretty good job accounting for whether or not they'd weatherize their house. But then we added into the equation a social indicator. And that was the extent to which people had shared and discussed information relevant to this with friends and neighbors. 
And as it turns out, that was a predictive factor over and above all those other factors. It mattered whether or not this was something you talked about with the people around you. So our conclusion was that there is certainly some degree of influence from a normative perspective. It could be that under some circumstances, people are learning practical tips and tools, and they're learning some value of this from trusted resources. And this relates actually that latter point to something we found more recently, which is that in the general space of people's interaction with the environment, we've looked at with a different group over at Duke University, people's response to weather warnings and weather-related emergency information. What we found in that circumstance is that local sources tended to be trusted and matter. So there's something interesting about the way that people pay attention to the information environment where there's some value in what people around you locally are doing and thinking. And I think part of it is your sense of their own direct relevance. So somebody on my block does this to their house. I probably see that and take that information in as being maybe a little bit more credible than just the more abstract sense of, well, here's what people in Cleveland are doing, or here's what people in Perth, Australia are doing. I may not view that as being as relevant to my individual circumstance. So we've got to find ways. There's a challenge there because from a scale standpoint, it makes sense to have international or nationally based messaging. But on some level, what can we do to let people know that this is relevant to them locally? And one way to do that might be to work through local social networks because there's a sense of reinforcement of norms, but also a sense that you're making information seem locally relevant to people. So I think what we found in that paper was some evidence for potential communication strategies moving forward that might be interesting for people to pay attention to. I think what's interesting is that that means you might go down a different path than simply putting together an informational brochure. What you might do is look to make salient to people what others around them are doing. You know, you think about this in the simple way that housing contractors will ask to put a sign in your lawn saying, well, I'm the one doing this roofing work here. But are there ways to make it apparent to people what something like a relatively invisible weatherization tactic might be? You think about this even with solar, sometimes it's pretty prominent, but in other instances, people aren't aware of actually what people are doing that's environmentally friendly in their house. How much can we raise the salience of that in neighborhoods? We think that you know, maybe that would have an impact on this spreading amongst people in a way that an informational brochure might not. So that was part of the big insight. Yeah. Right. Because what I got out of it, it said that the people that had had conversations with their neighbors or people around them about anything to do with weatherization slash energy efficiencies were twice as likely to have done weatherization, energy efficiency yeah. upgrades than people who had maybe just had some factual knowledge. But in this one insight, this one insight has kind of been my world for the last year, and it comes up over and over again with everybody I interview. Because in the world of government and city and utility programs, and even big NGOs, it seems to be the way it's perceived is that we have this large entity that is trying to communicate to individual people as if they are an island, and every person is an island. Yeah. And it's using this factual-based approach, this kind of like economically reductive yes. approach. I mean, economically quite broadly, like behavioral economics, just pros and cons. This is why you should yeah. do it because of rational reasons, rational economic reasons, rational environmental reasons. But the way that it really happens is that you have an individual homeowner or a building owner take on something and then they're like a tributary. They're like a feed, like a network effect out to all those people that could yeah. be walking down the street, seeing the behavior that could be having conversations, it could be going to school, anything to do with any church groups or a swim club or something like that. So if you're looking about how to affect change, you really can't be looking 
here's the big organization trying to get out to 10,000 islands. You yes. really want to be looking at it like this sort of network effect of tributaries. And like my job is a designer. I design these programs yeah. and as a creative person trying to think like, okay, one person has put on a solar panel. One person's put on insulation. How do I get them to tell that story That's right. as a creative communications professional? It is my job to try and figure out how do I get them to tell that story to like 10 people around them? Yes. Like that's kind of the marketing job, not the big umbrella entity to all the islands. That's kind of the big message here, isn't it? Yes. And think about even some examples that we've seen in a negative sense during the pandemic in terms of human behavior. Things like early on panic buying of toilet paper, right? Or other instances, which defied logic under some level, but it was a matter of when you've got a crowd and a crowd psychology, literally sometimes is seeing other people in the store. Same thing with traffic patterns. Sometimes you'll see you know, people sort of go with some perceived wisdom in what a crowd is doing. And so then it, it sort of accumulates and it actually builds momentum in that way. And I think that unfortunately we see that dysfunctionally sometimes for some types of things, but I think functionally and in a positive way, things can take off. And I actually, both in terms of human behavior, we see that but it's also important to keep in mind, we have, I think, a misperception of the ways in which public opinion is stuck or reified sometimes. There are moments when we view some of these perceptions as really intractable. And then we see circumstances where that doesn't really seem to happen. If anything, a lot of our perceptions are actually remarkably fluid. A lot of political scientists will tell you that there is not necessarily the core stability in some of these perceptions that you might like to have under some theories, but nonetheless, there's some fluidity, but that also means there can be remarkable moments of change. So if you think about even just in the political and civic context, there was a time and period when it was viewed that support for gay marriage, as an example, right? There were folks that thought, well, we're not going to get to a majority acceptance on that, you know, anytime in lifetimes. And over a relatively short period of time, the pendulum swung gates broke open and you don't necessarily still have universal acceptance, but you shift to a majority opinion on something that was viewed, you know, even five or 10 years before is not necessarily likely to happen. I think we're at that point with a lot of these different ways of thinking about how humans need to live. I think partly it's a matter of getting people to take the leap based on working out for their neighbors and realizing, look, you can live this way. It's okay to drive an electric car. It's okay to live in a house that is built this way. It's okay to live in this different configuration. You'll be all right. Your neighbors are doing it. It's working out for them. And I think that's a different way. People don't necessarily have the time to weigh long, factually-based arguments. It's more a matter of they're trying to get their life in a comfortable way, keep their families healthy, looking for these brief signals from others like, all right, what's really the thing to do here? How are people getting by? But yeah, I want to save the world. That's great. But I also want to live my life individually and kind of get through that and looking around just for kind of quick signals. That's where I think the power of some of the social diffusion comes in sometimes. And I think from an engineering standpoint, we could make that a lot easier for people to see what was happening, what was being adopted. And that would be really exciting to have people working on that. Yeah, we really need to create a whole new discipline of design, which is environmental yes. social diffusion design. I'm going to coin yes. that now. I'm going to go and write Great. a blog article called environmental Perfect. social diffusion design and get all my designer friends to Excellent. get into it. But I really love that you brought up the example of gay marriage, because often when yeah. I'm talking about a lot of these topics, one of the objections I get, not so much from my like super green enthusiastic group, but more from established people, like people don't care about the environment, Katie, nobody's going to change. People are just fundamentally selfish. It's never going to happen. You know, this kind of like the world is just full of greedy consumers. And that's a really strong sentiment that is out there. 
like it does look like that, right, from the outside and in people's opinions. And what I try to remind people with this sense of hope and optimism, especially because there's such a climate doom, very sort of mm-hmm. negative mind space that's adopted by a lot of people in environment, is to remind them of the enormous social hairpin turns that have been done yes. just in the last hundred years. Like gay marriage is probably one of the tightest time frames of an enormous, I mean, I'm 40 now, but in a mm-hmm. very tight hairpin turn in perception. Also about race, just in the last 100 yes. years, about women's equality. I mean, mm-hmm. we've sort of grown up with gender being reasonably kind of the same through my lifetime. But I mean, when was it? You might know the year oh, that yeah. women got the vote. When was it? Right. 100, 150 it's, years ago? It's just about 100 so years ago here in the US. Yeah, so like in yeah, my grandmother's coach. age. Like my grandmother Maybe. was alive then. What else is there? Smoking used to be really common. There's Thanks. fur. And I think when we look at carbon dioxide, I feel that we can do for CO2 what has been done for all of those, and we can do it in a reasonably short period of time and get a lot of hope and optimism from all these examples. Yeah. Let's even grant the point that there's some degree of selfishness in people, right? I don't necessarily grant that, but imagine you did. Even from that argument, people are still going to want air to breathe. They're going to want a place to live. There's a certain degree to which I don't think people want the dystopian world, even from a selfish standpoint. So it's going to be a matter of a sense of urgency. Once you start to realize the problem is when it seems like there's an infinite capacity to be selfish, that's not going to harm you individually. But as we're starting to see, of course, that that becomes more salient, the direct harms and the limits on resources. And then people are going to want to scramble for a solution, you know, in a hurry. But I share your sense of possibility. A lot of it is going to be interesting in terms of timing on this. So I think if we had all the time in the world eventually, but maybe we can actually see moments of real concern, but that there's heightened enough awareness that you see dramatic change and dramatic change can happen in ways that would make a difference. It's an interesting balance, but um, but I don't think all hope is lost. I would agree with you on that. Yeah. I suppose the way to make the tipping point and the tidal wave happen to sort of bring it back to your research and your expertise is not to take both the educational and the rationalist and the what we call biospheric appeals, the environmental appeals approach, where we're just telling people facts about the environment or money, but to really take this social network effect, people having conversations with real people, changing their minds. Like you said, people's mind space can be changed just because you think one way. After a conversation, you can think a completely different way that happens through these social networks and to really think about as a social network design challenge rather than a, we just need people to know how many parts per million are in the atmosphere. Think about this too. People vary in terms of their level of extroversion or introversion. And that's an important here because there are some folks that are going to be excited or happy to talk about their new insight in terms of something they've done on their home property. And But a lot of people aren't necessarily. And so I think about To what extent do people know about steps that I've personally taken? I'm not sure. I mean, I think the people probably could guess, but I haven't necessarily been very explicit about it, you know, always. And I think that there's probably some value in encouraging and finding ways to help people tell their story about the choices that they're making. There are instances in which the pattern might be better than people expect in terms of the number of people that are doing X or Y or the number of people that are open to it. And so to what extent can we lift up some of that? for others to see. And I think that's going to take some work to kind of figure that out. But I think generally speaking, we might be pleasantly surprised and then really be able to build on that momentum. And I think that that's some of the examples you talk about. That's kind of how that goes. People take a bit of a bold leap and they're like, you know, I actually think we've got the numbers on this. The majority is actually in support. We just need to make that not a silent majority and make it outwardly available. I think there's ways cynically people have 
opted to operate to kind of bring out some of our darker tendencies and to say, look, we're just going to explicitly say this and gamble. Unfortunately, there's some of that that's been operationalized as well, but I think we also have this positive possibility also. And a lot of the ways that we live were kind of handed down to us. And so there's a certain degree of comfort. We're like, oh, a house needs to look this way, or this is just what you do. But if given different circumstances, I mean, if we were born into a world of renewable energy, is there really anything inherent about the way that we are doing things that kind of speaks to the human condition? No, it's the outcome of those things. The comfortably temperature regulated house and products that we enjoy celebrating holidays or whatever. But if we woke up and all those things were supplied in a different way, I don't think that people would object. You know, They would accept it. We have to get to that point on the other side of trying to maintain some degree of our human celebration of this life fueled by different means. That's where there's been a really unfortunate cynical framing of some of this which is that somehow people's belief in a way of life or even a conservative sense of wanting to hold on to that somehow has to do with it being powered in unsustainable ways. I'm not sure that aside from people that are even directly involved in those industries, that there's necessarily inherent value that people place on sustainable energy sources. So One of the threads that has come up through every environmental psychologist I've interviewed, which is explicitly declaring that people don't have bad things inside them that are driving this. So actually, when you take the academic lens and you actually give people tasks to do and you're testing it, you're not just looking out onto the world at a shopping mall and just judging everybody, but you're actually taking people through a proper scientific method with proper theories that people come out wanting to do the right thing. People are good. And there's always the environmental psychologist screaming out saying, It's not true that people are doing this because they're greedy and they're selfish and they don't care. That is not what is making people do certain things. It's got to do with people are actually trying to be liked by their social group. You know, they're trying to get by. They're trying to be good parents to their kids. I mean, okay, maybe every one in 50 people is genuinely a horrible person, a sociopath or whatever. But most people are optimized to be good, responsible people. And, you know, we need to tap into those desires to be good, responsible people. And this kind of attitude that I feel like you can get with some environmental people that it's just because people are greedy and selfish. I mean, I personally just emotionally just don't resonate with that as a person, but it's really not standing up at all as a proper theory from all of these people that I talk to about this. There's two things that come to mind. You know, one, I think we misunderstand people's general relationship. I do a lot of work on public understanding of science. You can find headline stories that suggest that we're at this crisis point in terms of people's trust in science. And while there are concerning aspects of public opinion dynamics, it's actually not accurate to say that there's this wholesale and complete loss of trust in science. People generally trust science, actually, even now, despite other headlines. I think we have to remember that, and that's important. But I think the other thing that you pointed out, which I just would love to see us get to that point, we're not likely to get to a point where our, and I don't think we'd want to, sort of our base humanity, our interest in other people, our social nature, our interest in beauty, our interest in other values, like that's probably not going to go away. We wouldn't want it to. So I always think about the example of finding environmentally friendly ways to give people what they want in terms of fashion, you know, for example, right? So you're not trying to take away the core pleasure people might have, but finding a way to give them that in a sustainable way. I think people are very supportive of that. So it's like they hold on to some of what they're doing because it feeds this core human need. But if it could be provided in a better or more sustainable way, they'd be all for that. And so it's just a matter of, you know, helping them imagine that possibility. Imagine 
where we have an indulgent world that feels like we're celebrating and having these positive emotions. But a lot of the environmental education campaigns are focused on you know doing the right thing, making this sacrifice on here's the specific reason for it. Instead, you could also still be celebrating like a world where there still will be birthday parties and we're not asking you to not be human, I guess, is the story there. So I'm not sure how we married that all together, but I think we urgently need to remind people that and kind of get people inspired to help people see the solutions so that we can retain some semblance of the life that we put together as humans on the planet. Brian, it is my life's work to do that. Every day I am trying to reframe, and I've been doing it all my life, really since I was even a teenager, trying to reframe the environmental sustainability message about the best aspects of human nature, that it's about beauty and community and love for the planet and about having technology progress in a really wonderful way that complements ecosystems with our capacity to invent and design. It doesn't come at the cost of nature. We do it as one. And really trying to forge ahead this other kind of vision for the sustainability movement that is all about the positive sides of what humanity can be. And a kind of a little bit of a war, just a very quiet sort of war against my other fellow environmentalists that can be very sort of aggressive and doomish and negative. And I don't necessarily think they shouldn't be doing that because we wouldn't have the momentum. Like, why should we be bothered to make so much change if it wasn't bad? So I don't necessarily think we should stop sending out the negative messages. But I think in addition (laughs) to that, we need maybe about three or four X of whatever that energy is about telling the bad story, the doom story. We need three or four X telling solutions, imagination, you know, and really building campaigns that are branching from this positive centered imagination or this image of what we want humanity to be and pulling people into that vision. So if you think about the trade-off, even in terms of there's arguments to be made for loss-framed messaging and gain-framed messaging and all that. The problem and the challenge in the environmental arena is that I think you don't necessarily see a lot of effort to focus on gain framing. People said, well, people respond to a sense of imminent loss. What's gain oh, framing? Oh, okay. So the idea that you could gain something positive as opposed to losing something. So a fear tactic where you have something, you're going to lose it as opposed to, well, I can give you this nice thing if only you do this. But I think the challenge is that we've got people saying, people are going to respond. We need to raise their fear and concern. But they're not necessarily focused on celebrating or uplifting what it is that we're trying to preserve in terms of that part of humanity. And to reassure, it's more just a matter of we need to do this as a last resort, like things are falling apart, whatever. But also, I think there needs to be some degree of reassurance that, and if we do, there is a positive future that's possible. I often think about, it's sometimes blasphemous to point this out, right? But I also think it's hopeful. People need hope. We've got to find a way to be realistic and to give them some degree of that. And if people feel a complete and utter sense of fatalism, they're just going to shut down altogether. But even looking into a future, even with the climate changes that we're seeing, there still hopefully will occasionally be decent days for a picnic in some places if you're economically fortunate enough to have. And not to say that that's enough to rest on our laurels, but just to point out to people that we're just trying to improve on some of these possibilities that are still on the table. And I guess that's where. I think we have this real push and pull and the problem with the doom saying is that it doesn't give enough space for people to kind of sit with that and to see realistic possibilities for hope as well that are urgent, that are necessary. You know, we can't afford to lose everything, but it, I don't know. I just think it needs to be a balance. And I think that surprisingly, there's not much room for hope and optimism in a lot of these circles. And so I think the work you're doing is noteworthy in that regard, but it doesn't surprise me that it's maybe not as common as it could be. 
Well, did you see this thing called the Imagine Project that I've been posting on social media in the last, just assuming that you look at everything I do? Yeah. Did you notice well, that, that? Maybe not everything you've done, but I've, <laughs> I've seen that. And I think the spirit of that really fits what we're talking about, right? And I think that notion of the power of imagination for people is vital. I do not think that people are inherently guaranteed to necessarily live their life in a way that's inspired by imagination, but we also know that they can. I draw a lot of inspiration from you're born into this world. There's no guarantee as to how your life is going to unfold. But we also know that with different experiences, with supportive families, there are great and wonderful possibilities for people. So I think that we have to assume that people have the capability of imagining and of being inspired by it, which is not something we should take for granted. But I mean, there's a real latent possibility that you're trying to tap into with that, that it's sometimes the bolder thing is to be optimistic. Yeah, I'd love for you to have a listen to one of my latest podcast episodes that I published, which is with Professor Joshua Wright. And he actually tested environmental imagination exercises on people, giving them an exercise where they would write this positive future. And it really jumped out at me because I'd never seen environment and imagination anywhere. And then I saw it in an academic paper and I was like, God, I like talk to this guy. And so I was really happy to get this interview out there. The way he frames it, you know, through the academic lens, I mean, my lens is just, I want to think about eco cities and green roofs, you know, but the academic social science lens is he calls it a cognitive alternative and really tests and understands the theories behind how powerful it is that people can actually imagine a cognitive alternative and that empowers their sense of agency. Like if you can't imagine an alternative world, you're not going to be sort of amped up to make the day-to-day changes to make that alternative world happen. And it could be something, even if you think about simple, like something like weight loss, yeah. if you don't have in your mind that one person, you might feel like 20 pounds overweight and your mind is, this is my future self, which is when I'm in really great shape. I mean, it's that future self kind of imagination, or maybe it's like a home that you want to build or whatever, a dress that you want to make. You need to have that cognitive alternative to work towards, to do all the actions. And he actually found that by giving people this imagination exercise, it increased their actual sort of day-to-day environmental behaviors. And he also gave them a campaign letter writing exercise. It was voluntary. After you'd done the imagination exercise, please write a letter to your local minister, whatever, about the environmental topic. Quite a lot more. I can't remember how much more people who had done the imagination exercise went on to write the letter than the ones who were in the control group. So anyway, it's really interesting to listen to for a theoretical framework if you yeah, want to no, dive absolutely. into it more. I will. But you know, what's also really crucial there is I don't think that for a lot of these topics, it's a matter of convincing people that a healthy environment is a good thing. You know, necessarily, it's more a matter of so. How do we get there? How do you help us get there? I think that gets taken for granted. It goes back to your earlier question. It's just not very easy necessarily for people to see how it all fits together, see how a town or a city or a state has made a difference, or to see the tangible change. But I think we also have great capacity. People learn if we learn that something works we will continue on with it. And it's possible to set us down that path. I also take perverse hope from the timing of our current challenges. You think about how much environmental damage we've done in about 100 or 150 years, and we don't necessarily have 150 years, but still 150 years is not 10,000 years. It's remarkable what certain patterns that were rewarded in a short term, systems get put in place, things kind of move in a particular direction, We made a lot of wholesale changes as a society, transformative, maybe in a negative way, 
but in response to short-term rewards. But if we can make salient some of those rewards and some of that activity, I think we'd be surprised at the possibility for macro level change over time. I just don't believe that we don't have any good indication of society not being open to those kind of changes because too much happens in particular towns and the life and history of them over time to suggest that they're not vulnerable to collective changes in perceptions and what's happening. It's really lovely to dive into these big topics, but because we're just with our last bit of time, I want to make yeah, yeah. sure that we cover yeah. all of the nitty gritty of the yeah. social science. So <laughs> it's lovely, but I just, I might ask you some more yeah. boring nitty gritty questions That's fine. now. Moving into the nitty gritty of the behavioral science of how to make all of this stuff happen, with your particular research paper or with what all research papers do is that they push a little bit further in a way that the research hadn't been done before. Mm-hmm. So what was it that was particularly different that it was pushing yeah. into that hadn't been covered yet? Yeah. So part of it is really just a data collection and measurement issue. And so there's a couple of dimensions there that I think we tried to make some changes with regards to that. One was actually even in the realm of energy-related knowledge, the idea that there might be a distinction between more broad and abstract and theoretical knowledge and the more practical knowledge of interpreting an energy bill. That was something that hadn't quite been done to the same extent that we did it. And in a way, that type of measurement was where my collaboration with Joe Murphy and other colleagues at RTI International started was what can we do to improve upon existing or conventional energy knowledge measures? But then the thought was, so if something social is happening, how are we going to tap into that? You only know if that's a force that matters if you measure it, right? And so part of the simple innovation was asking people the question about interaction with others, which surprisingly doesn't happen as much as you might think. And so if you think about existing survey items that relate to a topic like weatherization, or it might relate to other energy behaviors, for some of the listeners to think about how explicit there is an indication or a measurement of interpersonal interaction or of social conversation or of social diffusion. And if it's not there, it's not going to show up in a model as a predictive factor. So if we hadn't measured it in this particular case, our model would have looked different and we wouldn't have known. We had been agnostic about the influence of of social aspects. So I think that's really the step we were just describing what might account for this particular behavior, but by having the insight, I think, to consider connecting this to a wide ranging social literature. That was interesting. And that's something that connects back to work that I had been doing a while ago, which within social science, I also sit within a particular domain, communication research specifically. And so there's something that I had learned along the way about the nature of communication research, which was sort of an interesting insight. And for people that don't do work in that arena, this doesn't even make sense, like why this happened this way. But the truth is that over time, over decades, in a lot of academic departments that focus on communication, you'll get either a focus on mass communication, thinking about mass media or those electronic media, TV, radio, internet, or you'll get more of an interpersonal focus thinking about what happens in an individual dyad, what happens between a couple, what happens between individual human relationships. It's all communication. It should all be theoretically linked, but surprisingly, the literatures are pretty separate. So one of the projects I worked on early on in my career was an effort to try to connect those. We have an old review paper on the roles of interpersonal communication and thinking about mass media campaigns. And so when I talked with Joe Murphy about it, this idea was that, well, let's think about what some of those interactions might look like. One of my first books actually was focused on social networks. 
It's actually called Social Networks and Popular Understanding of Science and Health. And it's just revealing, I think it gets taken for granted because we know there are other people in our lives. We know that's the nature of humanity, but we don't really think about the subtle ways that the people around us have an influence on who we are, what we do, and all of that. So it was really bringing that into a specific model and a survey that was the insight here. And I think that we've seen some citation of the work, you know, in the years since it first appeared that suggests maybe we were onto something there with that idea. And that's something that I think is an avenue for new direction now for people working in this arena. And so what is peer-to-peer diffusion? Yeah. In particular, in regards to energy, so energy efficiency behaviors. So it could take a couple of forms, but imagine in the days before the pandemic, if you're having coffee with somebody and you actually talk to them about the specifics of the work that you're having done on your house, that might be a way that the person you're talking to gets information about it that they hadn't gotten before. You can think about it now on a social media platform. Somebody posts a picture of a new solar panel that they put on their house and they explain that this was a good contractor to work with, or I'm getting this information about it, or I'm getting this kind of performance. Then the other person learns about it, not through an advertisement, not through something they track down on their own, but through somebody's social media feed. So this notion of information flowing from a person to another person, from a peer to a peer We know that that's the way that certainly a lot of misinformation travels that way. A lot of information about how things operate, people pay attention to. That's the whole basis for these social media platforms has been the recognition that people talk to one another. That's something you could tap into. And then people have gone and designed platforms around that. So I think that was part of the insight there. Our sense is that that's an important way that information could flow. Now, there's an important caveat here which is we've also done some work that appears in some other places that suggests it's unrealistic to think that currently most people, most of the time are having conversations about weatherization or about energy or about those topics. We know that in terms of if you do an analysis of like how often and how prominent those topics are, they're not particularly common. When they happen, they're powerful and it matters, but they aren't necessarily what people are most likely to talk about. So I think part of the key for us is to figure out what people are talking about, right? And then how do you generate those kind of ways to make those conversations similarly popular? What is the equivalent of the furry kitten meme that we could have for thinking about energy and the environment? What are the ways in which we could encourage people to talk about this? Are there ways that that could fit into the other reasons and motivations people have to talk to one another? Because if it doesn't fit into that, then it's unlikely to come up at the dinner table or the coffee table or over the backyard fence. And so that's part of the role I think we have to do as communication designers, you know, as well as how can we remind people of why you should talk to your neighbors about this or how you can talk to them about it. Because I think they are going to need some help and encouragement because it might be a little bit weird if you just start assuming that people are just going to walk down the street and start espousing some renovation that they made to their house, right? So. Yeah, so kind of like piggybacking topics. And I've been having the same conversation with quite a lot of people about this because people come to me, like my job is a behavior designer. And so they're coming to me, organizations asking me to try to come up with some graphical thing or a strategy to actually do this. And so like we've been saying, like the normal way it's been done before is let's just scare everybody about climate change and just give everybody a list of top 10 green tips. And that's really very crude and probably not a very effective way to do it. Try to really hack into how we actually 
manifest these conversations and give people tools. I mean, one thing that we were talking about was creating something that was novel because it can be awkward. You know, you meet somebody, you want to try to bring up plant-based eating. I don't want to push. I eat plant-based. I never, ever push it. I'm not one of those vegan activisty sort of people. I wouldn't be like, hey, you bad person eating a hamburger. I'm just not like that. But how could you bring it up in a way? And we thought of creating like pins that look novel or little like three-dimensional objects you could have in your house that would be mm-hmm. unusual. Like, what is that weird thing? Or like, what is that thing on the wall? And it would almost invite the conversation. But I just had an idea of something I wanted to ask yeah. you, because a lot of this comes down to tradesmen. We can talk about the theory, but we remember we're here with like a house and a tradesman and a job. And I've done a fair bit of work on urban heat islands. And one of the ways to help with urban heat islands is getting homeowners to paint their roof white. It's pretty, it's not too expensive, it's about $2,000 to do. And I think Los Angeles County will even pay for it. But nobody knows that you can actually paint your roof white. It'll take down the temperature, you know, by like 10 or 20 degrees, really powerful. You can cut 40% of summer electricity consumption just by the lightening of the roof. There's even a subsidy, but it's hard to get people to know about it, to know how powerful it is, really big deal for climate change. So I'm working on this and I'm trying to think of like, well, how do I encourage people to do this behavior? I'm here trying to think of it as a behavior designer. How do I make this happen? And one of the guys who I worked with at NASA introduced me to his friend, Tom. Now, Tom is not really an environmentalist. He's a really nice guy. He's a screenwriter with a family, owns his own house. And the heat island expert at NASA was just talking about Tom because he said, yeah, my friend Tom painted his roof white. And he was just amazed about how instead of turning his air conditioner on at midday, he only needs to turn it on at maybe 5 p.m. now. And it made this really big difference. And so I said, can you introduce me to him? I'm going to interview him on a Zoom call just like this. And so I just asked him about every detail about the house and how he got the contractor. And he showed me some photos and Tom and I are kind of friends now and we talk about roof whitening and his kids and stuff. And so basically I've got this unedited Zoom call about roof whitening, like so boring. Like how is this an exciting topic like white roof paint, right? Super unglamorous topic. So anyway, this is my question to you. So there's this guy, Tom. And there's the contractor and there's the LA city and there's the subsidy and there's the people who make the roof paint. And there's someone like me who can design things and record Zoom calls and chop up video and do social media. What do we do with Tom to help every single person Tom knows copy him and him have that conversation? Well, I think part of it is figuring out completely aside from roof whitening, what Tom's social interactions are like and what his motivations are for having them. If Tom was a teenager, which he's not, but if he was, you might imagine ways that you could try to encourage the roof to be a prop in some social media effort. You think about the nature of adolescent social media right now, for many platforms, it's a matter of finding ways to kind of continue a thread and to tag along. You're mimicking some dance move or you're tagging people, but it's a way, it's an excuse to interact. You have something to interact over. And then here you're passing something along. So I could imagine under that, it'd be like you know, maybe different artistic ways to do something with the roof or whatever. But in Tom's case, he may have different normal patterns for interaction. They probably differ between his family members and his friends. But maybe it's a matter of thinking about prepping people. We know that there's some degree of anticipatory rehearsal that happens as people get ready for Thanksgiving, as people get ready for New Year's or whatever. And some of those conversations, you want to have them. If you're fortunate enough to have them in person, you want to go enjoy some pie and meet up with your family. But it's the same conversation every year. You don't know what to say. Well, maybe there's a way to encourage this as your topic to have. Icebreakers in organizations are well-intentioned. Icebreaker activities to kind of get people talking. 
but people don't like them you know, necessarily because they don't like being on the spot. So I tend to think about well, what can we do to help people get ready for icebreakers? Here's your ace in the whole story to talk about. So helping Tom to envision like, what are the instances where it might be helpful to have something on hand to talk about under other circumstances, you know, maybe there are people that he connects with that would be really interested in the physical aspects of it. Like, how did you make that work? Or what kind of paint quality do you have to, you know, with paint even work on a roof when you're talking normally about other kinds of shingles? Or I, I don't know, there might be some people who'd be interested in the technical aspect. And then maybe there's some aspect of his experience as you've talked with him about it that was funny or amusing that would give him the fodder for somewhat silly or absurd anecdotal story that he could talk with some people about because maybe there's some part of it that he's happening to relay that he's got this white roof that he's put in. What's really funny about it is he dropped the can of paint on his head, putting it in or so I don't know. I mean, but there'd be some way to think about how he normally interacts and then can you insert or frame or coach up to get the topic talked about as opposed to saying, hey, Tom, I really think you ought to talk to people about your roof. It's going to help save the world. You know, instead be encouraging to kind of think about the obligations we all have to interact with other people. Are there ways that this could be currency for that? And maybe it's not going to be universally successful, but if we get every other Tom to do it, that's better than it is now. All right. And I think getting at scale, some people to share some of this with a thousand of their closest friends on a social media post. I mean, there's something to be said for that. That's the way that we see some aspects of misinformation or other information we don't want to see escaping into the world because it's going viral. I think there's possibilities for some of this also to go viral under the right circumstance. So is there a photo filter or some other thing that's possible to give to Tom that's going to make his house look really good or is going to look interesting if he uses this and encourage him? Yeah, I never really post Instagram, but I'll do it with this white roof because it looks good in the way that you've got this. I don't know. I mean, I'm just brainstorming on that, but I think it's a matter of figuring out what the obligations people have to interact with their social world and then trying to match the energy efficiency or related content to that rather than trying to force the square peg into a round hole. Actually, my next group Zoom event is with a group called Mesh Minds, who I was actually sort of working in association with for UNEP. And they make these little Instagram filters. So augmented reality filters. So they seem reasonably straightforward to make because a lot of influencers make them now. And if you press the star icon, you can use this particular software and, you know, you can make like people do it for like bunny ears on the head and type of things. And then you can make like really simple little games. So a lot of it is just kind of like just superficial Instagram fun, but they specialize in making environmental campaign one. So they get people to try on like, I don't know, like a gorilla that's going extinct. And because they're so fun to engage in, they can potentially be the hook that creates the conversation, that actually creates that kind of change. Yeah, this idea of being like a social diffusion designer, I'm really into this idea now. I mean, we can't dive in that deep right now, but I think with a team of like creative people, you know, and giving us a couple of hours, we could probably come up with a really amazing framework and sort of really dive into this one topic. And it kind of made me think, say if there is like all the Toms, you know, who are doing these things, and let's say we had infinite resources for all the people to help. That every time there is a Tom doing one of these things, Tom has a session with the local city or environment's social diffusion mentor, coach, Mm -hmm. social diffusion coach, and says, hi, Tom, I was just wondering, you know, it's really important for us to kind of like spread these behaviors. 
Maybe we could just chat like a friendly psychologist, coach person. If you have any events coming up, if you could talk to people here, we have little cans of tiny white paint that you can give out to your friends and here's some oh, yeah. trees. It's like taking the time to kind of walk him through social psychology mm -hmm. and like give him some tools and here's some free stuff, you know, rather than just like, I don't know, giving someone merch and a t-shirt, very simplistic kind of marketing or a bunch of stickers yeah. or please share it on social media, like a little bit high level engagement. It might sound kind of ridiculous to put that level of resources behind it, but honestly, no. I don't think it would be that hard. I think someone like him, he was obviously really excited to share his roof experience. And if somebody was part of a program to have like a 45 minute phone call with him to try and encourage him, I mean, that could be really worth it financially. It's high touch point, but governments and utilities are spending millions of dollars on stuff that doesn't work very well right now. So yeah. I think honestly that you can think about investing a ton of money in the equivalent of the Super Bowl television advertisement, a one-time broad reach, highly designed persuasive message, where you can think about the million smaller touch points that could have in seeding all this change. And I think I'm leaning towards investment because I think a lot of what we're talking about is not necessarily even having to move the needle that far, but it is going to take eyes and ears and boots on the ground and you know having a lot of local contact points. I think that's exactly the right way. And I think part of the reason it doesn't happen is people get tired. They're like, all right, well, this works, but this worked with 70 people and they don't scale it. You know, if we get that replicated to a hundred thousand sets of 70 people, we would start to get somewhere, but how do you get to that point of scale? And that's something that's really hard with a lot of the types of things that we're talking about is actually getting investment in scaling and replication of locally developed interpersonal types of initiatives. If we can get to that point, then I think we're going to be somewhere. So. Well, you don't necessarily need to do it forever, right? You just need to do it till it gets momentum to a kind of a tipping point. So in theory, once it starts to get going, you might only need to do it for a sort of like a batch process until it becomes the new kind of social norm. Well, and I mean, not to drive everything back to the pandemic, people have bemoaned the fact that we're not to the levels that people might want to see us in terms of vaccination, but we've made tremendous progress too. And we'll have to see if this becomes you know, endemic and all that, but there's a certain degree of a push over a short period that gets society to a different level. So similarly, like with your white roof example, you know, you're going to need some maintenance and upkeep or whatever, but the biggest push is going to be initially, you know, if you actually had 80% of homes with this right now, it would make a big difference. And you wouldn't necessarily have to encourage that every year, right? And so that's something worth keeping in mind. Some of these things that are a little bit of effort, but that don't have to be sustained every day, you know, that's something I think worth doing, trying to encourage people to take that step that once they do, pays off dividends for 10 or 15 years at a time. I think that's a really smart type of thing to invest in. So. Yeah. And I think just from my own experience, I mean, I've done like a lot of marketing and social yeah. outreach over the years. I used to run a media company. I mean, I have yeah. a book, I have a podcast. There's a lot of like social media building and outreach and building a following and putting campaigns out. And it may not look on the surface that that's what I do, but that probably takes up about 75% of my day-to-day -day work. And what I've yeah. really noticed now that I've started to get a bit more traction and started to get better at sharing my work in this new social media yeah. landscape, and also really trying to promote environmental campaigns and actual real environmental behavior change is just how manual it is. Like people think that you can get a viral video out there and then you'll just like, no. oh, you'll get an app that will scale. You know, I've worked on a whole bunch of different apps and softwares and I live in Silicon Valley and I kind of live the Silicon Valley startup yeah. life. And then you'll start an app and then it will scale and then it will go viral and then all these people, it'll sort of grow. And in my experience, that has never, ever 
happened. I have reached a certain snowball effect with certain things I work on, but yeah. the reality is it's super handholding, it's manual, it's DMs with people on LinkedIn, on Twitter, meeting people in real life, having real phone calls with people. And I've never experienced a non-human internet only big change campaign take hold, not with anything I've done. And I think that's what the fantasy that everybody wants, that something will just happen on its own with marketing and not through one person at a time. I think honestly, part of what's really unhealthy about that perspective too, is that people assume then that if you've tried and it doesn't take off virally, that it wasn't necessarily a good idea. I tend to think about it in terms of the metaphor of like, you know, building a fire or whatever. There's a certain degree of kindling, certain degree of getting it started. Once started, it might burn quickly. It might actually hit a tipping point where it takes off. But that threshold for that is much, much higher than people realize. And so all along the way, there are really good ideas that languish for quite a while that are working in small neighborhoods or small pockets that just don't take off. And investors and funders and evaluators, sometimes there's an assumption that, well, it didn't spark and go viral. Well, it's still worth the effort to try to do this, to get it out. And eventually then certain times there is a massive level of investment where things eventually hit a point where there is some degree of momentum. We see that with some product launches and some things, you know, where you've got market dominance. So the social media platforms have gotten to a point of prevalence now where there's momentum, but it takes a long time to get to that or a lot of individually seeded effort you know, to get people to get to that critical mass. So yeah, I agree, but that should be an inspiration for people and not necessarily discouragement. Yeah. I think people have got to get really real with this idea of just, you've got to be like boots on the ground, feet on the street, person to person, and really fall in love with that process. I mean, that's something I've learned. I feel like over the last year or two of really doing this at first, it was like, oh my God, it's so hard to engage people because of sense of failure and sort of futility around it. And then I realized that I was like, no, I got to go one person at a time and do this. And that there's a real joy and a love in that human connection. And now I've built this incredible community of real people that I really took the time to get to know as humans, not as social media followers or emailers or somebody who might put on a solar panel, just some data point that might give me a commission, but really focusing on the real human connections that I'm making and just letting it grow like that. And people come to me for design consulting, you know, with their app and with their software. And they're like, how do we make it grow? How do we make it change the world? And I'm just like, it's not going to happen in the app. It's going to happen in the human and the human relationships. Maybe they'll use the app, but it's really, really person to person. Yeah. So that's what our conversation is about. I mean, it's wonderful to be able to share this, to talk about this with you, because I mean, it might sound normal for you. You do it every day, but in our environmental world, it is not a conversation that's being had. Yeah. I appreciate your interest in the topic and the insight you have and happy to help shed some further light on it. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Wonderful. So my last two questions, second last question is if you could look a hundred years into the future and the world would be dramatically improved, everything we would hope for, What would be the one thing that you would change or make happen to get us there? Hmm. I would try to find a way to tap into what I know is in the hearts and minds of people individually and to try to break down some of the systems that are controlling or manipulating that. So find a way to activate individual change, but connect people to one another in a positive way rather than necessarily have us living in fear of what we can't do. Yeah. And what are you most excited about researching in the future? Hmm. Looking ahead into the future, I'm really interested in trying to understand communication dynamics and the world that we live in and trying to get better at measuring and capturing what's happening in real time and feeding that into systems. And so looking forward to finding ways to partner with some of the advances we're seeing in computing technology and 
just trying to creatively match theory to the actual measurement that we're doing in order to improve the human condition through research. Okay. Well, this was wonderful to be able to take such a deep and nuanced dive into the social psychology of how to just, it's really simple, just get people to have conversations about stuff to change the world. It doesn't really necessarily need to be that fancy. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. I really enjoyed it. Good luck with all you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast. It's an incredible journey to understand all of this academic research and be able to share it with this incredibly nurturing and loving community. I am thrilled to have the How to Save the World podcast partnered with some of my favorite groups in environmental design and technology. Our first partner is a group called EarthHacks. EarthHacks runs environmental hackathons about once a month where they gather all sorts of technology folk, computer programmers, GIS people, designers, engineers, and just about anybody to get together for a weekend hackathon and dive into these fascinating environmental technology problems. I definitely support getting involved in Earth Hacks. If you're into technology or computers or data and the planet in any way, you will love Earth Hacks. And you can sign up and join their hackathons at earthhacks.io. Our second partner is a group called Climate Designers, run by my friends Mark and Sarah. And Climate Designers is a group bringing together all types of designers from all disciplines of design and asking the question, how can we use design to help solve climate change? They've pulled together an amazing group of people from around the world and they hold events and a podcast and they run a community on the platform MightyWorks. And you can sign up and join their group at climatedesigners.org. And our third partner is a really cool group called Conservation X. Conservation X runs all types of innovation challenges and partnerships to try and invent and come up with new ways of of cutting edge technology to help with the conservation movement's greatest problems. And Conservation X has really come out of this small scale DIY hacker put it together yourself space with conservation and it encourages people to start building their own technology. And you should jump onto their website at conservationxlabs.com to check out their current programs. And they also have a podcast that you can check out called Explore. The links to sign up to these really cool partner groups are in the show notes below. may have noticed that I produce several projects that you might like to sign up to and check out to see if it's useful for your sustainability and climate work and interests. The first one is Energy Lollipop. It's a Chrome extension that shows you the real-time emissions of the Californian electricity grid with a bold color to signify its intensity. And it's really fun data to watch because it fluctuates wildly. Our electricity is almost completely clean during the day because California has so much solar, but then it jumps up around dinner time when the sun goes down to be really dirty. And oh my God, you should see it when we have a heat wave. The CO2 literally jumps off the chart and the emissions go into the black color zone. The Energy Lollipop Chrome extension really shows us how carbon intensive heat waves and air conditioning really is. And it also shows us how important it is to 
try and nudge people to shift their electricity consumption behaviors from this peak CO2 evening zone at around dinner time over to the middle of the day where our grid's electricity is mostly created by solar. It also tells a powerful story about why we need better energy storage. Energy storage meaning batteries. It's great to have clean energy during the day, but what do we do when it gets dark? So jump onto the Google Chrome store and type in energy lollipop and you'll be able to install the Chrome extension there and you can find out more about it at energylollipop.com. The second thing I do is called Urban Canopy, and it is all about getting urban heat island data and putting it together with behavioral science. I worked with NASA JPL to develop a process of creating high resolution maps of urban heat islands using freely available data. We can put these maps together of the surface temperature of cities with pretty high granularity and then calculate the average surface temperature of every single land parcel. And this is where the behavioral science magic comes in. Once we have the data for every single land parcel, the data being the surface temperature of that land, then we can compare them against each other. And nothing taps into the motivational core of the human mind quite like being compared to our neighbors. If you think a thermal land surface temperature map like this could be good for your city, have a look at urbancanopy.io or send me a message and we can see how we can create a tool like this for you. If you are bored of the climate doom message and you want to focus more on solutions and you love the idea of an ecotopia future, sign up to this group I've set up called the Imagine Project. Now, I love eco cities and eco utopias, and I love the idea that we can actually create an environmentally sustainable biophilic world one day. I set up the Imagine Project to bring people together who also want to dream of this better world. It's a network of people who have this similar aspiration and we get together about once a month to make before and after artworks of urban spaces where we take a photograph of an urban space that is ugly or sad or decrepit and we take it into a graphic design program and make it beautiful with trees and green walls and animals and color. And the process of reimagining these urban spaces has an almost magical effect on the person making these artworks and they're really fun to see. There's almost a transcendental quality of looking at a hard paved surface urban space with no nature and no art and no love and then looking at what it could be if it came alive. It's a really fun process so you can sign up to that at katiepatrick.com forward slash imagine. I also have a book on the Amazon Kindle store called Zero Wasteify. It's a tutorial of over 150 zero waste living tips with some fun data and infographics. And the book really dives into how important it is that we look at the environmental impact of the supply chain of the ingredients of our products instead of taking this extremely limited view of recycling and only looking at the environmental impact of products once we've already used them. The book is called Zero Wasteify, Mastering the Art of Zero Waste Living and it's available on Kindle. And the fifth main thing I do, of course, is my book, How to Save the World, that's available on Amazon, on Kindle. It's also an audiobook on Audible. I have a course on udemy.com that's about how to apply gamification and behavior to environmental issues. And you can get started with that when you sign up to my website at katiepatrick.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And thank you to our amazing guests who've joined us on the show. And of course, for your interest in the amazing world of environmental psychology. Now, let's get out there and make saving the world the greatest game we've ever played.